This is Homebound Oregon, a podcast created for these uncertain times, set in the town of Ashland, Oregon, right here in the foothills of the Cascade and Siskiyou Mountains. Well, we're alone, but we're alone together, sequestered from one another as the coronavirus spreads throughout the globe. This podcast is an attempt by one community to stay in touch, to remember what matters, to help one another weather this storm. It's very easy right now to get caught up in fear and worry, to sit in front of screens imagining terrible things. So we hope this podcast provides a respite from the anxiety, inviting all of us to stop and hear a song, fall into a story, take in an insight from one of our neighbors here in the Rogue Valley. The poet W.S. Merwin claimed that if we didn't believe in homecoming, we couldn't bear the day. And in this time of great disruption, dark unknowns, we can feel quite lost. So if we're looking for a home, a place of comfort, well, our home is not a place. Our home is found in one another. And we have experienced this time and time again here in Ashland at a regular community gathering called The Hearth. For the past 10 years, The Hearth has hosted public get-togethers in which local folks are invited to stand up, share a story, share a song. And we thought this is a good time to go through the archives and harvest those stories and songs that we need to hear to help us stay connected to one another right now. We're doing our part here in Oregon. We're keeping our distance. Our schoolyards are quiet places of worship, empty downtown businesses, shuttered, often with handwritten apologies taped to the front doors. And yet, despite all the social distancing, if you step outside, you can feel the companionship of others. This morning, I could hear the piano teacher practicing show tunes in her front room. I spotted the young father who runs the downtown coffee shop sitting on the curb, watching his three young daughters bike in circles. And while I was out front, a lone runner came down from the mountains, stopped in the middle of the street to tell me he spotted the old black bear up on the watershed. Most people I see from my house are alone, often walking their dog. The only groups congregating are the deer, the lawless, immoral, soulless deer who gather in my front yard in groups of eight to 10, eating the deer-resistant plants, ignoring social distancing, often looking at me through the front window as I sit sequestered in my house, as if to say, yeah, that's right, we're deer. We do whatever the hell we want. The theme for this first episode is loneliness versus solitude. Two states of being that can come over us at this time. Without social activities, without work, we can feel quite anxious and isolated. We can start to look at others as competitors or threats. can feel completely overtaken by our own inner suffering. But then there's this other state that's possible. Solitude. In the midst of having 
an abundance of time on our hands, we may notice an invitation to become more aware, more engaged, more alive, more attentive to the questions that matter most. You might sense an invitation to find the quiet center of your life and begin to live from there. But how do we do that? How do we move from loneliness to solitude? Well, one way is by reaching out. You contact those you love. I have three children, a daughter, Gracie, who's in high school and at home with us, and two older sons who last year moved away and are living in Minneapolis. So I thought I'd do what many of us are doing at this time, pick up the phone and give them a call. Hey guys, how are things going? Good. We've uh, been playing music today, restrung my guitar, and, and made some dinner. So, so you're both unemployed. Yeah, yep. Your partners are unemployed. Yeah. And, and what is it like to have all four of you have no income, living in Minneapolis... Yeah. It's getting boring really fast. <laughs> How are you spending your days? Uh, it's a lot of card games and word games and cooking. And today, tonight we talked about uh, what would happen if we started a food truck. You mean a food truck that you guys just cook at and serve yourselves because you're not allowed to see other people? <laughs> yes, exactly. We have a lot of post-quarantine business ideas coming up you know, to capitalize on some of the low interest rates that are going to arise from all this coronavirus stuff. So in a year and a half, in a year and a half when the coronavirus is over, <laughs> yeah. this, is the, this yeah. is the business idea, food truck. Yeah, we'll exactly. have a food truck, yeah. What it's kind of hash and we only serve hashes. Like hash browns? Yeah, like mixes of like corned beef hash, but we do fun takes on it. Well, it makes me really grateful that we're still under quarantine, because that's a <laughs> that's a terrible idea. Yeah, well time will tell. We've got months. Do you guys feel the parent worry coming across the United States towards you? Yes, definitely. In, in the phone calls two or three times a day. <laughs> and the text. Gentle what a, reminders about home-cooked meals. Yes, I saw yeah. mom, mom taking pictures of desserts and meals last night and texting them to yes. you, trying to lure yeah. you. You guys have a song that, that you sing that's about calling someone that you miss. What's it, what's it called? It's called uh, Everything Trying. Everything trying.
is blocking Canelli brothers holed up in an apartment somewhere in Minneapolis, hopefully packing up their belongings and heading west to home. In considering this theme of loneliness versus solitude, I remembered a story told last fall at the hearth by local Christy Lashuber. The theme that night was rites of passage, and Christy talked about an intense experience of isolation and anxiety and how she transformed that to a space of compassion and freedom. Thank you. 
Hi. Um, what would you go through to be completely free? About six years ago, I was sitting on an airplane, and I, was, I had the window seat. And I look to my right out the window, and I see the Las Vegas Strip. And it's beautiful. It's about 7 in the morning, and the sun's coming up. And the rays of the sun are bouncing off the sides of the hotels. And I start to see the Bellagio fountains fade off in the distance. And then I cried. And I couldn't wipe my tears because my hands were handcuffed. And I had shackles around my waist and shackles around my legs, and they were all together in a black box right at my waist. So I took my shoulder, and I kind of got the big drops from falling. And then I thought, how did I get here? I'm a wardrobe stylist from Orange County, and now I'm shackled on Con Air. This is crazy. I take a deep breath and I look straight forward and a marshal is staring right at me. He's sitting backwards in his seat looking at me and all the people behind us. And uh, I ask him, can you tell me where we're going? He says, no. And I said, can you at least tell me how long we're going to be in the airplane? And he said, I can't tell you that. So I take a deep breath and I think I fell asleep because a little while later, I woke up feeling like the plane was getting ready to land. And I look out the window and it's white out. It's just pure white outside. And the marshals get up and they put on their heavy gear and they put on a face mask. And you could just see the whites of their eyes. And I was afraid because I just had on a short sleeve camouflage t-shirt. And I thought, oh, it's going to be freezing. And they, um, they give orders to all of us. And they say, we're going to start from the back of the plane. And each of you are going to get up, and we'll tell you who's going to get up. Don't talk to anybody. Don't look to your right. Don't look to your left. Just keep moving forward. So they open the door, and the whoosh of the cold and the snow come rushing through. And I'm looking at them, waiting for them to give me some gear, but they didn't. And then I start to hear the shackles from all the men that were leaving from the back of the plane passing me and I look at Bonnie who's sitting next to me and the officer says to her Belle get up and I thought I didn't know that was her last name and I thought Bonnie Bell I used to love that lip gloss strawberry Bonnie Bell was my favorite and how odd that I'm sitting next to Bonnie Bell who is going to be doing 12 years for murder so she gets up, and I follow Bonnie Bell out of the airplane. And we go down, and I'm freezing, and we're shackled, trying not to fall in the snow. And all the men are to the right, and all the women are to the left. And one by one, they start calling different names to go to the different vans. And a gentleman said, can I give her my coat? And I thought that was so nice, but the officer said no. So each person got to a van, and I'm standing there left alone. I'm thinking, am I being punished? What's going on? And finally, they call my name, Lashover. So I make my way over to one of the vans, and Bonnie Bell scooted over, and I got in next to her, and she rubbed her arm on my arm to keep me warm. That made me cry, and I was trying so hard to be strong. They close the door, and we start down the freeway somewhere. And I look out again, trying to find out where I am. I'm thinking if I look 
if I see the license plate, I can see what state I'm in. And I started seeing New Jersey. And the, um, they had the music blaring so loud, so we couldn't really talk in there, but I heard a girl say, I think we were in Newark Airport, Newark Airport, and I knew I'd heard of that before. I'm from Southern California. I didn't know. I've never been to Newark Airport. And finally, someone said, I think I'm sentenced to Danbury. And so, sure enough, that's where we ended up in Danbury, and we went through several fences, several barbed wire fences that they would buzz us through, and we ended in the back of, the, of this big facility. And one by one, we got out, and they stripped us out. We had our khakis and the white bra and white big granny panties, and then I got a coat. I was so happy for that coat. So much joy in a weird place. I had this deep joy in Danbury for a split second. And so my senses were all crazy all over the place. And then they called each person one by one. And I realized these people were going to the home that they were going to be in for their next 19 years, 21 years, 12 years. And when Bonnie was called last, I thought maybe she would turn around and look at me. We weren't friends, but I thought I had made a connection with her, and she didn't. And she kept walking, and finally I was the last one again sitting there, and the officer came up to me and said, Lashover, the prison, the pretrial prison in Rhode Island forgot to get you, so you're going to have to stay here tonight. And I said, okay. And he said, now, because you're not supposed to be here, you're going to have to be in the shoe, which I learned was solitary confinement. So I begged him, can you please let me just sit on this bench? I'll just stay here with you. And he said he couldn't do that. So I took a deep breath, trying to be strong. They shackled me back up, and we walked outside. And the snow had stopped. It was dark, and the whole compound was filled with a blanket of snow. It was really pretty. And I kept thinking, this is like a movie. I'm going through this like a movie. And what is happening? And to back up, I forgot to mention, when I had said that I wasn't sure how I got here, I knew how I got there. I was a child in the hospital a lot, and I got a lot of Demerol, and I loved it. And I loved um, the gentleman talked before about avoiding emotions. Demerol helped me avoid emotions. It helped me avoid anything that wasn't just happy and nice and good. And so I learned how to do life through that. I finally got sober, and I relapsed, and I had so much shame, I never talked about it to anybody. And because I was stoic, as you were saying too, that I never shared anything. And I just kept going deeper and deeper in shame. And I did drugs and I sold drugs to somebody and I got caught. That's how I ended up on Con Air. Now I'm in solitary confinement. And so they stripped me out into an orange jumpsuit and were walking through and they opened the door and the smell was pungent. It was smelled like feces and throw up and the screams and the noise was so loud. It felt like a human zoo or something. And I'm starting to crack, but I kept walking. And the guy looks at me, the officer, and he said, I promise you're going to be okay. I'll come get you as soon as I can in the morning. So I walk through, and on the right side, there is just a wall of cement. And on the left side is rows and rows of cells. There was three levels. And I was praying the whole time, just put me in a cell where there nobody's at. 
because all the screams, I wasn't sure what was going on. And so the, the, there was a gal, she had a real tight bun, she didn't speak, she had tons of keys on her um, waist, and she escorted me through and then stopped at a cell that was empty. I was so grateful there was a cell that was empty. And I look and I see the stainless steel sink and the stainless steel toilet that you see in the movies. It really looks like that. And she stops and motions for me to go through, and I did. And then she slams the door shut, and that's when I cracked. And I started crying, and I couldn't stop. And I'm thinking, what is going on? How am I going to survive this? I lay on the um, I lay on the bed, and I'm just crying. And I'm hearing all the screaming, and I'm thinking, I'm not going to survive this. But I did survive this. I got sentenced to five years. And I did, um, I was in prisons in Texas, Rhode Island, Las Vegas, Connecticut, Oklahoma. I stayed sober. I worked really hard on myself. I even went back to college when I got out. In fact, just last March, I was on spring break, and I was in New York. And this is the first time I had ever been back east since that time. So it was a little surreal. I'm one of the most grateful people you will ever meet in your life. I will guarantee you that. So I'm sightseeing, and I'm on top of the One World Trade Center, and there's an area where you can go and buy and uh, rent an iPad, and that shows you all the um, all the landscape. And you can hold this iPad up, and you're looking around, and you see all the different monuments. And I see uh, Ellis Island, and I see Statue of Liberty, and then I see Newark Airport, and I sh- shake, and I sit down, and I start crying. And I sit on the bench and my knees are shaking and I take a deep breath and I have to talk to myself. Christy, you were warm. I had on a black puffer jacket that was so warm with a faux fur collar. I look at my hands and I rub them. I'm not in handcuffs. I'm totally safe and I am warm. And I think, wow, I made it. That's what's who I would never think my rite of passage would be prison. I would never choose that. If you asked me if I wanted to go through that again, even though I'm completely free now, I don't know that I would say yes to that yet. But during those 1,500 days, I was able to work on myself. I was able to look at my grief. I was able to look at my shame. I didn't have to people please. Nobody needed anything from me. I could be who Christy was. And I had to figure out who that was. And I got to know her in a horrific pain and struggle and tears. But come out the other side. And now here I am at SOU and with my family. And uh, I just feel so grateful that that was my rite of passage. Thank you. After hearing Christy's story, I decided to give her a call and see what advice she has for those of us trying to move from loneliness to solitude. I think if we can um, feel the fear, that's the biggest thing. If we can feel the fear and feel a little panic and kind of, like I was saying, just to go inside and, and feel all those things that we're feeling, and once we start to judge it, stop just say, you know, um, all right, that's okay, I'm feeling like this. And then whenever we can, the next thing is to say, what can I do for you? Because that's instant joy. 
you know, if it's a phone call or if it's a grocery store or if it's just saying hello to someone walking by, it seems so insignificant. But when I get out of prison, um, you know, I came from, I came from a lot. And when I got out, I had nothing. And so it was uh, very humbling to feel like, wow, I have nothing to offer anybody. But actually, I did have a lot to offer, which was, um, how can I be a light in somebody's life? One of the things I notice you say in your story is, I'm a grateful person. Could you talk a little bit about that, how gratitude is a part of your life? Yeah, it's makes me emotional just hearing you say that I'm so grateful for every little thing like today I took a picture of like the eight different kinds of ingredients I could put in my coffee today <laughs> it's, it's like, I have to choose all these different things I can pick up a, a phone I can touch the loved one I can open my window I can walk out the door I can walk outside I can um you know, look at flowers, and that sounds kind of, you know, silly, but when you're in prison and you you can't do any of those things that I just mentioned, um, you're in a cell with people that you don't know that have committed crimes, and some of which are scary, and you have to find things that make you happy, or not, you can choose not to, but I think it's more beneficial um, you know, to look for things that make you happy and joyful, and it's everywhere. You know, you, if you go by, I recommend someone going by a group of flowers. There's daffodils out everywhere now. And just stop and take about even 60 seconds to, to look at it. You'll see, like, the perfect asymmetrical shapes. You'll see the ombre shade going from light to dark. You'll, you'll see so many amazing things in that flower, and I'm not kidding you, it fills your soul. So I thought I'd end this episode with a song, and I thought of Sage Meadows, a teacher at John Muir School, a music teacher, also a songwriter, also a performer, uh, also a mother of two. Can you hear me, Sage? I can hear you. Oh, there you, you are. Okay. <laughs> How are you living through this time right now? You know, as a teacher, last week was just so intense, um, being with the kids and seeing the situation go from, um, you know, something that we were probably going to have to talk about a lot in April to being... Um, we have to close the school down this week, <laughs> you know, in a matter of days was a pretty intense experience last week. Um, and then also then saying goodbye to the, to my students. I've been pretty affected by that. There's a lot of emotions going on. There's also kind of open space. Like we don't like open time and we're not sure what we're supposed to be doing with it. But it feels like as a songwriter, you seek out open places or lonely spaces or solitude or something like that. I identify solitude as kind of being magical because <laughs> if I am truly alone, uh, my music is different. My experience with music is different. Um, for songwriting, for me, definitely solitude. Um, you know, I'm from a, a, ver a rural place I spent a lot of time alone <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> growing up <laughs> uh, one of the reasons I took up 
poetry and writing and guitar um, because it does come from that place of, of just having that space. Dream of highways, slow and winding voices, calling out the miles. I stop to wonder at the river flowing so steady and wild. Standing at the edge, eyes of green open wide to the sky. And I wonder where I'm bound, where I'm bound. And I wonder where I'm bound. And I Today we walked across that old concrete bridge I held their little hands. My mother's mother woke up that morning, said, this is where heaven is. I've brought them here to stand at the edge eyes of blue open wide to the sky Thank you so much, Mark. <laughs> How do you keep from feeling alone in a fearful time? You reach out, call your kids, look for moments of gratitude. You open a window, step outside the door, stop and stare at the daffodils. You let yourself dream, dream of rivers, Dream of a food truck business you'll start one day with your brother. You allow yourself to feel the hard and crazy feelings of this time. And then you sit and wait for the magic of solitude to descend.
You write a song, pen a letter, go out and work in the garden. Think of someone who might need a word of comfort or kindness. We are one town, one small community here along the Oregon-California border, trying to stay sane in an insane time. Our future bound up with similar people in similar towns in Iceland, Vietnam, Egypt, France, Costa Rica, and other places around the globe, with people who, just like us, are hoping to love and be loved. And where are we headed? Nobody knows. But our future is bound together. We are bound together, and our home, our home is in one another. Homebound Organ is produced by The Hearth, original music and piano accompaniment by Dan Sherrill, Everything Trying, composed by Damien Gerardo, sound recordings by Tom Frederick, Joseph Pilgrim is our sound engineer. And I'm your host, Mark Iaconelli. For more information on Homebound Organ and to hear full recordings of our interviews with locals, go to thehearthcommunity.com.